So if you have your Bibles, you can open with me to the book of Acts chapter 9. And we will be in Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19 once we get there. Uh, But it's been a while since I've been with you all in this capacity. I was here last week talking about the ministry I pastor on Sunday nights, the college and career ministry, but haven't gotten the opportunity to preach from behind this modern fancy pulpit in a little while. And, And since the last time I was here in this capacity, I have kind of gone through the process of establishing myself with a new doctor. Uh, Throughout college, I didn't really feel the need to go to the doctor, mostly because I didn't really get sick and because I was busy doing other things like trying to pass and taking out student loans. And so so in the last six or seven months, I've been to the doctor a little bit more. And one of the things that the doctor asked me when I went to kind of establish myself with a new physician is that I would go and I would get a physical. Now, Now, I've never had a physical before. But I assumed based on the name that there would be some poking and some prodding and some, you know, examining of me physically. I don't know if you've gotten a physical recently, but that's not what they do anymore. And so I went in, I worked up my courage, I was ready to be poked and, and tongue depressor and lights, flashlights in my ears and my eyes and stuff. And, and they, I walked in and they just stuck a needle in my arm and said, okay, sit here for about 10 minutes. And then they drained like a pint of my blood and they said, all right, you're good. Go home, and we'll talk to you in a month. I said, no, wait, you have to poke me. You have to do something, right? This is a physical. And they said, no, we'll figure it all out from your blood. And so they ran it, ran it through this machine, and they let me know about a month later, hey, you're doing super good. You should probably lay off the cheeseburgers. But other than that, life is, life is good for you, with the exception of the fact that you have like a serious deficiency in vitamin D. So somehow I have managed for my whole life to live in the sunshine state, And not get enough sunshine to be considered a healthy 25-year-old man. And and then they put me on like medical strength vitamin D, which I guess is like sunlight in pill form. I I don't know. It it tastes absolutely absolutely disgusting. And you only take it once a week because there's just so much sunshine in these little black pills that that I guess you only need one per week. But I'm going to confess to you that when they told me, hey, you, you, you live like a vampire, apparently... Uh, that that I, I felt like I might have kind of failed my ancestors in a way. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that. You know, from a very young age, I was, was made very keenly aware of my heritage, my background, uh, both on my mom's side and on my dad's side. And so from as early as I can remember, uh, my, my dad's side of the family and my dad and, and all those people on that wing of the Low Clan always reminded me, you know, you are an eighth-generation Floridian, Travis, so, so you're not just here because your family, like, five to ten years ago decided it was too cold up north and moved down south. No, your roots go deep in Florida. This is your home. And so I was always proud of that. You know, I'm not a snowbird. I've, I've been here for a long, long, long time. Uh, but, but my family didn't just kind of plant its roots here. But on that side of my family, most of the people in, in my dad's line were ranch hands and cowboys and farm workers and farmers and they worked in the orange groves they worked in the sun in the soil with their hands and i thought eight generations of people working in the sun in the sunshine state and i am vitamin d deficient i have failed the lows but not just on my dad's side on, on my mom's side, my, my grandfather is from up north, but my grandma, who I refer to as my yaya, is a Greek immigrant. She is from Greece. 
She has a Greek name to go with it, Artemisia Demopolis Acrig. Say that five times fast. She reads fluent Greek. We read the Greek New Testament together a couple weeks ago, and she corrected all of my mispronunciations and told me why I'm going to fail Greek in seminary if I don't get lessons from Yaya. And I don't know if you know this about Mediterranean people, people from that side of the world, but they tend to be renowned for their ability to tan like supermodels. Another wonderful heritage that I have failed to live up to because I just burn like a vampire in the sun. And so I thought, not only have I failed my eight generations of low clan, but I have also failed my Spartan heritage and can't, can't even get a suntan to save my life. Now, things are still cool with my family. They still let me come to the family dinners and get-togethers and stuff, and so I haven't been abandoned. And really, it's not even that big of a deal, but this idea of heritage, this idea of, of knowing where you came from seems to run deep in our culture, in our country, in our society. You know, it's July 4th weekend. We celebrate the heritage of our country. Where did America come from? What was the situation in the world into which it was born? Why are we here where do our roots go? Not just on a national level, but on a much smaller level. I think everybody has a desire to know where they come from. It's the reason why websites like Ancestry.com have taken off so well. People want to know, what is my background? What is my family tree? And I, I think all of us can safely say that we've had our fair share of conversations where people are more than happy to solicit their background to you. I can't tell you the number of people that have told me things like I'm 15% Cherokee and 37% German and 45% East Indian and 700% this and that. And the percentages never actually add up to a single human being. It's totally impossible that you're all those things because you just gave me 6,000% of something. You can't be that. But people are proud of it. People are proud of where they come from. They are proud of their background. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that at all. I think it's a good thing. But I do think it is tragic to an unbelievable degree that most Christians can tell you a great deal about where they came from genetically, but know absolutely nothing about their spiritual heritage. Because when I read the New Testament, there is a greater emphasis placed on who is a child of Abraham by faith than who is a child of Abraham by blood. And when we move to the Old Testament, the people of Israel obviously think that their family tree is important, but they're quick to identify themselves as the people who follow the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. It's not just that they're their ancestors, it's that they're spiritual ancestors, mighty men of faith who walked with the Lord, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. But many of us as Christians know next to nothing about our spiritual heritage. If we were a little bit more informed when somebody asked us of that heritage, we might be able to say something like this. Well, in modern times, I serve the God of Tozer and the God of Lloyd-Jones, the God of Packer. And we could move back and we could say, I serve the God of Spurgeon and of Jonathan Edwards and Charles Wesley. Or we could step back further. I serve the God of Calvin and of Zwingli and of Luther. Further back still, I serve the God of Augustine and of Aquinas. Further back even still, I serve the God of Cyril of Jerusalem, of Polycarp, of Ignatius of Antioch, of Justin the Martyr. Further back to the New Testament, I serve the God of Peter and of Jude and of James and of John and of Paul. And of Ananias. 
The reality is that church history is not just a boring class that they teach in seminary so they can crank out pastors with nice, dusty old tomes on their bookshelf. The reality is that church history, these last 2,000 years since Christ's resurrection and ascension, are the unfolding of him making good on a promise. That promise is this, I will build my church. And then we can look back for 2,000 years and see how he's done it. Our spiritual heritage. Christ making good on the commitment to build his church. The gates of hell cannot and will not triumph over it. Which is why I am thankful that we as a church are walking through the book of Acts. Because this is not just a detached segment of scripture. This is our history. These are the first people that Jesus used to make good on his promise and build his church. People like Philip, people like Peter, people like Stephen and Barnabas, the apostles. This week, we look at one person in particular, a man named Ananias, but we have to look at him in light of the man that precedes him in the text. So we are in the book of Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 19. But you'll have to forgive me. I think that we can only understand Ananias in light of Saul. And so I'd like to do kind of a brief recap so that everybody's on the same page before we move forward. Saul, who you might know as Paul, makes his first appearance in the New Testament in chapter 7 of the book of Acts. He's present during the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. In case you haven't put two and two together, stoning is bloody work. Throwing rocks at somebody until they die tends to leave a little bit of dust and blood. And so the men stoning Stephen remove their coats. They lay them at the feet of a man named Saul who looks on in approval. Chapter 8 tells us Saul approved of this execution. And at that point, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles and devout men buried Stephen and mourned over him greatly. But Saul continued to ravage the church Entering house after house, he dragged off men. He committed them to prison. And then we're told again in chapter 9, which is where Mark began last week, that Saul at this point is still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he goes to the high priest and asks for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is the church, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I think... The reality is that many of us have a very Sunday school perception of who Saul was. Many of us only think of him in the terms of what is appropriate to be depicted in a, in a, in a single episode of VeggieTales. And so he says a few bad words and he has a mean look on his face and maybe he tosses rocks. But that is a sanitized perception of who this man was and i think that when we continue on in our christian life with this sanitized perception we fail to recognize how much grace jesus poured out on him i have a really really dear friend of mine i love him he's one of my best friends he got married a couple years back i was able to participate in uh, the wedding but i i knew him before he got married i knew him before he became the man that he is today i knew him when he was battling with addiction chemical, um, and all other kinds of addictions, the kind of stuff that would make your movie or your life rated R if it were turned into a movie, battling with depression, thoughts of suicide. 
And there came a point where he said, I, I can't do this anymore. And he went off to a counseling and rehabilitation Christian clinic camp type thing. And over the next few years, the Holy Spirit used that to completely transform his life, to turn him into just one of the most mighty men of faith that I've ever met. And at the wedding, I remember talking to some of his friends who I just met there, didn't know for very long, a couple days. And I said, man, this is so crazy to see, to see where he's at now, to see who he was before, who he is now. The man walking down the aisle today is not the person I knew five years ago when he left to go turn his life around. And some of the friends said, yeah, no, I definitely agree. But others said, you know, I didn't know him when you knew him. I only knew him after he turned his life around. So he's told me that this is what he's like, but it's just kind of hard for me to believe. I can't really picture him that way. And part of me rejoices in that, right? That's exciting that his life has turned around in such a way. But part of me thought, man, you are missing out on knowing how profound the grace of God is in this man's life. To see who he was before, to see who he was after, many of us view Saul in the same way. We see him as the man who wrote Romans and Corinthians and Colossians and First and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon and all these books in Scripture that, that really drag, drag, drag the waters of the depths of what God has done for us in Christ. But that is not the man we encounter in Acts. To put this in a modern parallel, Saul is to the ancient church what Isis is to Coptic Christians today. He is terrifying, he is cruel, he's wicked, he's hated, he's despised, he's feared. And this is the man that we encounter on the road to Damascus, on his way to kill more Christians. This is the man that Jesus knocks off of his high, high horse, quite literally, and says, all right, you're done, you're mine now. We read about that in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. Tells us that he's knocked to the ground. He hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which he responds, Who are you, Lord? The voice responds, I'm Jesus, the one whom you're persecuting. Rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. And this is where Mark left you last week. So quite literally, due to nothing that Saul has done to warrant it, Jesus knocks him off of his horse and lays hold to him. He opens his eyes. He sees nothing. He's led back into the city where he was going to kill Christians. He spends three days not eating or drinking. Now, some people think this is because he was fasting, and some people think it's just because he was so distressed that he just couldn't eat anything. We don't actually know. But he's a hungry, he's a hungry bear at this point. And this is where we left Saul, and this is where Ananias steps in. And this is where we begin to ask the question, what are the kind of people that Jesus uses to build his church? So chapter 9, verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus. His name was Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judah, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here in Damascus, he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, 
Many of us have this perception, I would include myself in this category, that if we were to just see Jesus face to face, five seconds is all, is all we really need. Just one clear, good, solid look at him. That all of our doubts, all of our misgivings, all of our fears and anxieties about the Christian life would be alleviated. And, and that we would be good to coast from here on into eternity. The New Testament challenges that arrogance, though. Because we're told that there are many people who see Jesus after he's risen from the dead. We're told that some believe and others doubt, even face to face with the risen Lord. Which tells me that there is something more bent about the wickedness in our hearts than we're even willing to admit. Many of us would also say that if we were to see Jesus face to face, and he were to tell us, this is what I want you to do, go and do it. If we were to just receive the the audible voice to see him with our eyes, and he were to tell us what to do, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful, no matter how costly, we would go and we would do it. That's what we'd like to think. Ananias laughs at us. Because that's what he experiences. Jesus comes to Ananias and he says, hey, got something for you to do. There's a man at a street called Straight, which you can actually still find in Damascus. His name is Saul. You might have heard of him. He's kind of a big deal. I want you to go lay your hands on him and he'll receive his sight. And Ananias goes, ha ha, let's talk about this, Jesus. Don't you think, don't you think he should spend a little more time in time out? Maybe just wait. Give, give him a little more time to just think over what he's done. His immediate response is not obedience. It's fear and it's hesitancy. Now, we could hear this and go, well, I, I, you have a little faith, Ananias. And, and perhaps there is an element of that in this text. There's an element of that in his heart. But the reality is that I don't think if any of us were in his situation, we would react much differently. Especially knowing who Saul is. At the beginning of this chapter, we are told that Saul is still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord. In verse 10, we are told there is a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Luke is not accidental in his use of those two terms next to each other. And I want you to understand that Saul is a real person. Ananias is a real person. Ananias has friends. He has family. He has children, likely. He has, he has a spouse. Saul killed real people, real fathers, real mothers, real husbands, and wives, and daughters, and sisters, and brothers. And he's coming to Damascus to do that to the people that Ananias loves. This is not some detached text. Ananias has friends that Saul is coming to kill and stone like he did Stephen and drag off in chains. I understand why Ananias is hesitant. There is nothing beneficial about this call for him. Because here's what I would think if I were Ananias. Okay, so the guy who's been killing us, you've got him blind. He, you've got him up against the ropes. And you want me to go fix that? Here, here's what I would picture. I would walk in and I would give him a, a nice little tap and he'd receive a sight and he would see me and I would go to the top of his kill list. Ah, first Christian, let's get started. Because there is nothing glamorous, there's nothing immediately beneficial about the calling that Jesus places on this man. But this brings us, I think, to our first point. What are the kind of people that Jesus uses to build his church? 
There are people who follow the call of Christ wherever it leads, even when it leads to difficulty. I think the reality is this. Many of us, especially in this country, have so sanitized and so dehistoricized Christianity that if Jesus were to come to you, either, either visibly or spiritually through the Holy Spirit to speak to you and call you to something uncomfortable, to call us to something that's painful, that's costly, that doesn't immediately benefit us, we would write it off and say, Jesus wouldn't call me to that. That's not Jesus. And we would ignore the will of God because we don't think that God calls us to anything difficult. The people he builds his church through are the people who recognize that's not true. That he calls us to things that are costly. He calls us to things that are difficult. In fact, I would say this. You never honor Christ more than when you are obedient to him in the midst of a difficult calling. And if you truly want to test the depth of your devotion to the Lord, then we have to examine how committed we are when he calls us to things that are painful. And I recognize that many of us in this room are experiencing a painful calling right now. There are some of us who have been wounded by spouses, family members, friends, co-workers. They have wounded us in grievous ways that we don't think deserves forgiveness. And it's the only power we have in the situation is to withhold that forgiveness. And to forgive means that we lose control. It will be costly. To you, Jesus says what he said to Ananias. Go. I've called you to costly things. There are some of us who are either owning our own businesses or some of us who have corporations we work for. And the only way that those businesses stay above water or your neck is not on the chopping block is if you fudge the numbers or you cut corners. And it will cost you something to walk in integrity. And to you, Jesus says, go. Take up your cross. Count the cost. Follow me. Might be appropriate this weekend as we celebrate our nation's history to mention a man named Jonathan Edwards, considered to be one of the greatest preachers uh, to ever preach, but especially on American soil. I believe he was the president of Harvard for a season. But he's also written one of the most famous sermons ever, ever written. Actually, I went to a non-Christian high school. We still were required to read it in lit class. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and it's every bit as terrifying as the title makes it sound. Jonathan Edwards pastored a church in New England called Northampton Fellowship for 23 years. 23 years he faithfully preached the word, administered the sacraments to this church. And there came a point in his ministry where in searching scripture, he felt like some of the church's practices were out of line with what the Bible called them to. Specifically, it was the church's practice that they would give communion to people who were openly not Christians. And the hope that that would nudge them along to becoming Christians. And he said, you know what, I don't think we can do this anymore. I think that scripture makes it really clear. Communion is for Christians. So he went to the elders, he went to the leaders, and he said, I don't think, I don't think that, that this is where we should be, and I know I've been complicit in it for the last 23 years, but I think this needs to change. And the church said, no, that's offensive, you're fired. After 23 years of ministry. And they followed it back up with, but could you stick around for another six months to a year while we find your replacement? And he said yes, not because it was easy, but because he knew that the call of Christ was costly. But it's only people who have counted that cost that Christ uses in tremendous ways.
wasn't for another 200 years before that church publicly repented. Jonathan Edwards never lived to see it, but he counted the cost. And he followed Christ when it was difficult. So Ananias expresses his reservations. He says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Here he has, and here in Damascus, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. And so Jesus responds. He says, go. And then he gives him just the slightest inkling of a reason. He says, for he, has, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. It's interesting to me that when Jesus responds to Ananias' concerns, he doesn't respond by saying, go, we've had a powwow, he's doing a little bit better, he's cooled off a bit. Maybe not in those terms. But, but he doesn't even say anything like that. He doesn't say, go, we've had some anger management counseling, and, and he's, he's on medication now, and he's, he's cooled off. He doesn't say, go, Saul's actually a nice guy, he's a little misunderstood. Actually, Jesus' whole commission is not based on anything Saul has done yet. The whole commission of Ananias is entirely based on who Saul will be. He will learn how much he must suffer for my name. He is going to be my voice to the kings and the principalities of this world. He will be my voice to the Gentiles. He's none of those things yet. But that's who he will be. Isn't this the way that Jesus works throughout Scripture, though. We see this in the life of Peter. Jesus, very early on in their relationship, gives Peter a new name. A name that means rock. And then Peter proceeds to not live up to that name for the rest of the Gospels. The only time he's even rock-like is when he sinks like a stone because he can't keep his eyes on Jesus trying to walk on water. And then he denies Jesus three times, and then he flees from Jesus and abandons him at the trial. And I would venture to say that as he sits on the beaches of Galilee after the resurrection, the, the most burning question in his mind is, why would you call me this if I can't live up to it? But here's the reality. Jesus is more interested in who people will become by the empowerment and the sanctification of his spirit than who they are in their fallen and broken state. And the people that he uses are the ones who are willing to accept that. And not to view people in their brokenness, but to see who they can be in their restoration through Christ. Samuel's called to anoint a king over Israel. He looks through all of Jesse's children. And the least likely and the least apparent is the one who ends up being the greatest king in the history of Israel. And a precursor to Christ, a man named David, this weird kid who plays the harp out in the field. And Samuel says, I don't, I don't think he looks like a king. And God says, believe me, he is. Christ is looking for people who are willing to adopt his perspective on people rather than the world's. There's a woman who passed away about two weeks ago. Her name was Elizabeth Elliot. She's pretty well known in missions circles. In the 50s, Elizabeth Elliot and her husband felt the calling of God to minister to the Akau people, an unreached people group, a tribe, I believe, in South America. Every missionary who had attempted contact with these people had been speared to death, and so nobody actually knew where the tribe was. But her husband, along with some other missionaries, discovered 
kind of the whereabouts. And so they went to make contact with the, the tribe to share the gospel. And all of them were killed. Two to three years later, Elizabeth Elliot discovered the whereabouts of the tribe. And she went carrying the gospel message forward. And many of them were converted. But she went not because of who they were, because they were the people who killed her husband. They were the people spearing to death missionaries. She went because she knew who they could be when the gospel of Jesus Christ went forward in power. And this means something for you and I today. It means something for your discipleship. It means something for your evangelism. Listen, I am all small grouped out. I have led so many small groups I can't even count them all. And I know that there is always the one kid who you're just tempted to say, that boy ain't right. There's, there's something not right about that one. He, he's a little kooky. I know because I was that kid when I was in small group. And, and the text is saying this, that if Saul were in your small group, he would have been sent home and asked not to come back. And he proceeds to write 13 out of the 27 books in the New Testament. Nobody is too far beyond the power of Christ to save and redeem. And so we work with all of his power at work within us. Those are the people that Christ uses. And so the text goes on. We're told in verse 17, Ananias departed and he entered the house, laying his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He rose. He was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. Now I'm going to confess to you that having grown up in church, I've heard this story a million times. I went to a private school. I had to take tests on it. I, I mean, I knew it inside and out. And up until this week, I never recognized the significance of how Ananias greets Saul. And knowing who Saul is makes all the difference. This is the man who has likely killed friends of Ananias. Ananias might well have known Stephen. This is the man coming to kill more friends of Ananias. This is the chief persecutor of the church. The chief of sinners. And Ananias walks in and he lays his hand on Saul's shoulder and he says, Brother. Other translations, I think, render it better. My brother, Saul. Because at this point, Saul can't explain to you justification by faith alone. He can't explain to you systematic theology. But inasmuch as he is able to, blind and starving, at the house on Straight Street in Damascus, he recognizes that Jesus is who he said he was. And inasmuch as he is able, he is no longer the man who killed Christians. He is a new creation in Christ. And so Ananias does not greet him with the title murderer. He doesn't greet him with the title persecutor. He doesn't call him an, an enemy. I don't detect from the text there is any cynicism or hatred in his voice. He says, my brother Saul, the Jesus that you met on Damascus has sent me that you might receive your sight back. And the Holy Spirit. Some of the commentators think that this is the first Christian contact 
Saul had since his conversion. And it's not people shunning him for what he's done. It's people calling him brother. Which brings us to our last point. The kind of people that Jesus uses, the few good men and women, are people who long for peace and reconciliation. Listen, I don't know if you've watched the news lately, but it feels like the world around us is fracturing at the seams. The very foundation is being eroded out from under us. That things are more divided than they've ever been. That there's more animosity in society between people of different backgrounds than there has ever been. And we do no justice to the gospel of Jesus if it makes its way into our churches. Because under the blood of Jesus Christ, those who have been reconciled to God, no matter who you were before, you are now a brother or a sister. Racism, no place in this church or any other church. We are brothers and sisters made in the image of God. Prejudice is based on people's economic background, their nationality. No place in this church. The chief persecutor of Christians is called a brother three days after he was getting ready to kill more Christians. And it's because the gospel of Jesus went forward in power. Jesus says in Revelation, behold, I make all things new. He's doing that now by taking broken people and restoring them to what was lost in the fall. So my heritage has eight generations of Floridian and some Greek. And I struggle to live up to either side. But as a Christian, my spiritual heritage is people like Ananias. Who were called by Christ to do things that were difficult. They were called by Christ to view people not as the world sees them, as, but who they would be. And they were called to be reconciled. If you're a Christian, that's your heritage too. May we always as a church be found in lot with believers like Ananias. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. Uh, you're so merciful, Lord, that you would take ruined sinners like ourselves, uh, slaves, you would make them sons and daughters. That to redeem us as slaves, you would send your son. God, I pray that you make us people worthy of this call. Lord, that your spirit takes what's low in us, what's broken in us, restores it. That it makes us more like Jesus more like the people that Christ uses, people who answer difficult callings, people who long to be reconciled, people who view one another not as the world sees us, but as you see us. God, we've talked about the great commission of Christ, that we should go and make disciples. Lord, I pray that you commission us now as we leave this church, that we would go out into the world, to your world that you have created, and that we would be stewards of reconciliation, that we would go and we would make disciples this week, that we would return next week and celebrate what you've done. We ask all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.
There are bagels in the back provided by our missions department. Make sure to grab some. If you'd like to talk to me, I will be in the corner. Thank you. We'll see you next week.